Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but we have another good episode in store for you all today. Um, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about knee arthritis and really more in particular, kind of these osteotomies and some of these operative ways to manage early knee arthritis in the young patients. So we talk about medial, you know, tibia osteotomies, distal femur osteotomies, one to do one versus the other, kind of what are some of the um, things that you're aiming for as far as alignment. And we have Dr. Seth Sherman, who uh, came and talked to us about us, and he did a great job breaking this down. Um, a little bit more about Dr. Sherman. He completed his residency at HSS with the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. He did his fellowship at Rush in Chicago in sports medicine. Uh, there he actually served as the assistant team physician for the Chicago Bulls and the White Sox. Uh, currently, he is at Stanford University and is the fellowship uh, director for the sports program. Uh, he has co-authored more than over 100 peer-reviewed articles and chapters. Uh, he's actually the current chairman of the AOS Sports Medicine Slash Arthroscopy Committee, and he holds many leadership positions in many different uh, other organizations, you know, ANA, AOSSM, um, ISAKOS, and, and many different um uh, organizations. And again, Dr. Sherman did a great job breaking this down. We go over uh, what to look for on uh, history, uh, physical exam findings, imaging, how to interpret the imaging, uh, when you would do a distal femur osteotomy versus a proximal tibia osteotomy. And we actually go over some surgical tips as well on how to perform these different procedures. So, uh, you know, please enjoy this episode. If you haven't already, go to the YouTube channel and just type in Nailed It Ortho and you'll find us on YouTube. And you can see some of the things that we're referencing on the different x-rays. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe there. Um, subscribe to this podcast, of course. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Sherman, welcome to the uh, Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are happy to have you on, so uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. Finished clinic just in time. <laughs> it's crazy how those things work out. Um, <laughs> so we, you know, we typically start this podcast, a couple of questions, just getting to know you, and then we'll kind of move into the topic of the day. Um, so first question I have is, um, you know, I know you're very academic and, and you hold a lot of different academic positions. But, you know, what made you choose uh, academics to go into, I guess, for, for your practice and for your career? Excellent. So, um, you know, my dad is a uh, private practice sports doc in Staten Island, New York, and I kind of grew up on the sidelines and uh, was immersed in that. Um, you know, I think I, I always thought I was going to probably just grow up and join his practice, but uh, going through the ranks uh, at HSS and then, um, you know, my fellowship at Rush, you kind of understand uh, what the academic role models uh, do and how many different hats they wear. And it just uh, became uh, kind of you get the bug and you can't go back. I mean, I love to teach. I love to learn. I love to travel. I love to uh, have, uh, you know, broad and inspiring networks of friends and colleagues. And I think academic medicine gets you all that. Uh, obviously, we also get to take care of teams at Big Center 
centers and and do harder cases. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think uh, the ability to take care of complex uh, um, uh, patient populations, uh, as we'll talk about today, you know, really knee joint preservation, uh, really young people with arthritis uh, or uh, focal cartilage defects uh, and malalignment and failed prior surgery, uh, all those things kind of drew me uh, into academia. Yeah, that's awesome. A lot of people, um, it's, it's really interesting to hear everybody's different story of uh, what made them choose, you know, their their path. And so uh, you're always a, there's always a good, um, a lot of people always say, you know, things are challenging them and, and being able to, you know, be in this uh, academic institution and do a high level of complexity of cases. Uh, it's always, always good. And um, yeah. second question I have is I know you're, you know, reading up on you, we know you're the, the fellowship director there for the sports program. Um, since you've taken that position on and, you know, you've, you've had, you know, different fellows, is there anything that you've learned about yourself through that experience? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this uh, becoming the fellowship director has, you know, really been a, um, a somewhat of a, a career life uh dream or goal for me. Um, uh, I've thought that this was my kind of calling throughout and to get the opportunity to do it at this mid-career is such a blessing. And I'm so thankful to Mark Safran to believe in me and support me and to help me in this mission here. Um, I think it's the most humbling and gratifying experience, uh, period. Uh, when you can show someone else or give them the opportunity to succeed, uh, use their brain and then use their hands under your guidance uh, to take care of patients with you or on their own when they leave. Uh, that's just the the coolest thing. Um, I think the hardest thing for us educators is learning uh, for yourself, um, you know, how to trust people, when to give up the knife, when to uh, take it back and show them, you know, the, the key and critical aspects uh, that they may not be ready for, how to graduate responsibility, uh, how um, uh, really uh, to um, give that learner just the best opportunity uh, to grow into the surgeon and person that they, um, you know, they want to be and to fully support your team. And I think that that's uh, the most exciting, intriguing part. And, you know, I, I really lean on these guys for a lot of things, for a lot of the thoughts for our research, certainly for triaging a lot of our elite athletes, you know, uh, when they're at practice all the time. And then in the OR, we lean on them. We're always bouncing things off of you think of this how is it looking do you think the angles are right do you, you know any you know any red flags or if they're doing the procedure i'm helping them and so it's kind of a give and take that is just so gratifying uh, uh luckily we get great fellows here and uh, the program you know really is on the steepest part of its kind of incline and and so uh, i'm just so happy to be a part of it yeah that's that's awesome great great answer and um, third question a little off off topic a little bit um, but do you have a book that you give to others or that you always uh, tell people or re recommend that they read and check out? It can be orthopedic, it can be non-orthopedic, it can be about anything. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's a, a great uh, question. Um, typically, the one that I give um, is still within the realm of orthopedics or in medicine or doctoring in general. It's uh, my grandfather uh, was a general surgeon in Brooklyn. And when he uh, was in his 80s, before he passed, he wrote a book of his short stories, uh, his most memorable ones called My Patience, My Life. And I reread that every year or two, and it means something different to me each time. But it's really not just about um, the specific, you know, 
patient problem. It's about uh, a community. It's about relationships. It's about doctoring. And as Bernie Box says, not processing. And so I think that's been a fun gift for me to give to people and one that I give to myself uh, here and there. Uh, I guess the other one I, I read uh, just for myself, because I'm a huge diehard uh, fisherman is Old Man in the Sea, and that has its mm -hmm. own parables. But uh, uh, those are probably the ones that, that come to mind uh, uh, for me. Awesome. I definitely have to uh, check that book out and um, look at it. See, I'll, I'll see, send sure it to you. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, um, moving forward, kind of switching transitions, you know, we're going to talk a little bit today about, you know, osteotomies and, um, and, you know, these different kind of complex knee issues. Um, but I just had a kind of a, a made up case here. So say Dr. Sharon, for example, you know, you're in clinic one day, you have a 35 year old male comes in, main complaint of left knee pain, he played um, college football back in the day. He's had left knee pain for a couple of years. He's tried some therapy. He's tried some injections. Um, hasn't worked. Doesn't have any mechanical symptoms. And when you ask him about surgery, um, you know, he just says that he did a knee scope when he was in college uh, for a meniscus tear, but otherwise doesn't have any mechanical symptoms. Now, I know I just kind of gave a little bit of the uh, history and, uh, and some of the physical or some of the history. Now, what other questions, you know, in your head, what would you want to know um, about this patient? Like, what questions would you be asking them? Yeah, I think I saw this guy, you know, four or five times uh, uh, in clinic this week. Um, but, yeah. you know, I think uh, the key points, I guess, um, when you're um, a tertiary referral and you're doing knee joint preservation, often patients have come with prior surgeries. So it's clearly important to know what those surgeries were, whether they were a trimming or a repair, were they for an acute or a chronic uh, issue, what percent of normal they got back to after that surgery, and when did things kind of change uh, uh, for them? Uh, I think you hit on a bunch of those things, whether um, you know their main symptoms are pain, instability, or both. Uh, I love to ask people uh, their pain range, uh, you know, from zero to 10 uh, when they're doing nothing to their highest activity. I love to ask people their SANE score, their percent of normal, you know, versus the other side, uh, because when it comes down to it, most of the osteotomy patients, um, I don't really, um, you know, treat them with these bigger surgeries, these salvage surgeries, unless they have pain scores that sometimes exceed six out of 10 and percent normal 60% or lower. And you don't need a fancy schmancy, um, you know, um, iPad system or whatever. To <laughs> you can just really dictate those numbers in your notes and you can publish on that, you know, over time. So, but I like to just get a sense of the patient. Obviously you're asking this guy, I used to be athletic. Is he still athletic? Does he want to uh, climb Everest or does he want to just, you know, work uh, at his desk job or hang out with his kids or just play some light football or recreational things? So you really have to get a flavor for people uh, at that initial um, eval and then get a flavor for their dysfunction. Um, you know, of course, you're going to, uh, you know, do all the normal things we do for any other knee problem, understand if they've done NSAIDs, if they've done Tylenol, if they've done a sleeve or an unloader brace, et cetera. So you kind of outlined a lot of these things, um, you know, but those are the things that uh, I key in on. Uh, before I do my physical. Um, I know you guys hate to hear this and I hate it to hear this, but um, you know, the majority of these diagnoses are made in history and the physical is yeah. just confirmatory. It tests your hypotheses. You know, if you have a couple of things on your mind and then imaging is purely confirmatory or for planning, right? So we're not, to the, if they want to jump to the MRI, I bring them back to like, hello, how are you doing? And then- <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the things uh, one of our chairmen in clinic with him, he'd always like, you know, stress to me, like, you know, your main things in the history and then you need a physical exam that supports that history. And, 
you know, just like you said, imaging is kind of just a little bit more. Um, so definitely back to med school, history and physical exam. And, and speaking of physical exam, what are some of the things on, that you look for on physical exam, like when you're examining these patients? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, again, I do this uh, in a very systematic way. Uh, so they're usually sitting, I have them stand, they're always in shorts. Uh, I wanna look at their standing alignment. I'm looking for uh, varus, valgus, or neutral. I'm also looking for symmetry or asymmetry. If we're talking osteotomy, we're talking about decompensations of the mechanical axis, right? One side drifting into more deformity than the other. So that's important. I look at their gait. I want to see if it's antalgic. I try to see uh, if they can heel and toe walk, if they can double and single and squat, you know, just getting a, a surrogate for their dynamic control. Um, then I usually seat them and then do them supine. I do the uh, um, uh, non-involved uh, first. Uh, and the key things for these types of patients, uh, we're looking for biologic effusions. Uh, we're looking um, for a specific localized tenderness on one side or the other of the joint and one of the three compartments. Uh, we're of course uh, looking at a ligament laxity examination. Um, and uh, then any other special test that might come up for a given uh, situation. But, you know, those are, those are the main things that I uh, tend to look for uh, in uh, this patient population. And, and then so do these patients already come in with imaging or if not is, you know, what are your, what are your x-ray? We can kind of start off with x-rays and then yeah. go from there. Is there any yeah. routine x-rays that you get? And yeah, so is, what uh, look for? I, I think in a lot of places, these patients do come in with at least the MRI. Most of them come in with very bad ER uh, non-weight-bearing x-rays, and you have to talk them off the ledge. Uh, <laughs> so if it doesn't say weight-bearing, it's not weight-bearing. And if you're getting weight-bearing films and comparison films, and you know, you're going to miss stuff over time, especially in a busy life and a busy clinic. So I make some enemies uh, drawing my red lines because that's what protects me from making mistakes, okay? So that's really important. Um, and uh, for me, I typically get bilateral weight-bearing AP, PA flexion, I get um, a lateral, and I get a, um, a merchant view typically, or just a sunrise view if it's not a patellofemoral issue. Uh, I often and almost always get this uh, mechanical axis view as well, um, and I can draw a line from the center of the hip down to the center of the ankle, and I really want to look at the mechanical axis deviation. Uh, I want to see, compared to the other side, whether they're both neutral, whether they're physiologic varus, whether one side's drifting into more valgus than the other, um, and, uh, you know, you can see on the uh, regular uh, weight-bearing x-rays if they have any joint space narrowing whatsoever. Uh, we've learned that, you know, the PA flexion views are more sensitive for early arthritis. Um, but interestingly and thoughtfully, especially as you get more technical into the osteotomy world, uh, if some of these athletic types have preferential wear on the PA flexion view, which is posterior wear, versus the AP view, which is really their standing view, then you really aren't offloading that if you're doing a femoral-sided osteotomy. The femoral-sided osteotomy is really only offload when you're kind of standing. And so um, sometimes uh, even small correction tibias uh, for varus or valgus uh, can offload both an extension and flexion. It's kind of a tip or trick I've learned uh, over time from Al Gekud and a few others. So that comes in handy for, for some of these patients who've been menisectomized uh, with joint space narrowing in their 30s. Okay. 
So you said on, you know, when you get your standing AP, one of the things that you look for is mechanical alignment, which you said you get a line from the center of the femoral head down to the ankle. And when you're talking about neutral, do you just mean the line going through the middle of the knee? And then when you talk about varus, it's just going medial to that? Or can you kind of describe the Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we can identify the medial and lateral tibial spines and we can see where the um, weight bearing line crosses. And um, yeah, so uh, basically neutral would be between those spines and valgus would be if it's lateral or closer to the fibula and uh, varus would be the opposite if it's more medial. And then you said on your um, PA flexion views, if you see joint space narrowing, I guess one of the big things that I, you know, was trying to figure out from this is sometimes you hear, oh, well, is it, is it coming from the femur? Is it coming from the tibia? Like, how do you, how do you, um, how do you tease that out? Is that, yeah. that x-rays? Is that, you know, is that yeah, so I, exam? I, I think a couple of things. Um, you know, this is our initial eval standard weight bearing and alignment x-rays, you know, coupled right. with history give us a sense of you know where we are so at this point in the eval it doesn't matter as much where the actual deformity is coming from that matters uh tremendously when you're planning for the osteotomy right so right. you know when you move from non-surgical or surgical decision making which we can talk about you know for a few minutes here and then pivot towards pre-surgical planning i'm usually using these x-rays uh these days interestingly and excitingly i think for both a teaching tool and for a nifty tool you know i'm using ct scans uh we can actually measure these deformities using uh proprietary software we can measure all the angles uh which is what you're getting to so we can look at rotation of the femur rotation of the tibia we can look at coronal angles of the femur and the tibia and we can really tease out where the deformities lie and then we can pick our poison and choose whether we should fix them on the femur or on the tibia. And so, uh, but that's kind of getting a little bit uh, ahead of the initial eval because, you know, what all we really need to know is uh, for this guy in particular, he had a medial meniscectomy. Uh, he's having medial pain. He has asymmetric varus. He's coming in for the first time. He has no urgent or emergent symptoms, you know, major mechanical in nature. We're not going to rush to surgery. We're going to educate him. Um, and and, uh, likely treat them uh, non-op with PT, with a sleeve or in a motor brace, with NSAIDs, maybe injections, um, you know, uh, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not in the business of pushing people into osteotomy. I'm in the business of educating people and having them come back asking for osteotomy. Uh, right gets into the complication profile, how long it takes for them to go through the rehab and recovery. Uh, and it really has to be for the right type of patient with the right type of problem, or you can do great harm just because we have a good tool doesn't mean we need to use it liberally. Right. And so I'm always uh, trying to, um, you know, push people uh, away from my clinic, uh, give them, <laughs> push them away. And then, you know, they always come back. And, and if they come back and they fit the profile, they did all the right things in the right order, then I think they uh, would be a good candidate uh, for osteotomy. Yeah. So you mentioned some things you mentioned, you know, NSAIDs, you mentioned injections, you mentioned bracing. How long do you give these, you know, how long do you give these devices? Or do you start off with just a NSAIDs in therapy, and then if that doesn't get better, then move on to a brace, and then 
then if that doesn't get get better, try you know steroid injections, or I guess kind of what is your um, yeah? It's it's a good question. I think it's more of the art than the science of of this game, and I think you have to read the patient and read their thresholds, their frustrations, how risk tolerant or risk averse they are. So I don't think there's one perfect answer. Uh, I'd say most patients are leaving my clinic with Celebrex and intermittent Tylenol. Uh, patients who don't have uh, mechanical malalignments uh, but may have OA are usually leaving with some sort of a knee sleeve for proprioception, maybe some compression. And frankly, just for me to see if they're going to follow my directions, you know, uh, test right. them or operate, uh, unloader braces. Uh, I tend to use some of the non-custom ones these days that are more, are better tolerated. Uh, so I usually use sleeves at night and around the house and then the brace when they're up and about for longer times or as they ramp back to sport. Um, and I'm fine. Uh, I, I try to use or say to patients that uh, essentially the key components of this to stay out of the OR are, you know, PT and weight loss, right? Those are the AOS guidelines. Um, and so you have to have a thoughtful conversation about weight and you shouldn't have that as the first thing, but it has to be part of it to be a good doctor uh, and, you know, get them thinking about it. Um, but in order to reduce pain or inflammation to rehabilitate successfully, that's the role of medications, anti-inflammatories or Tylenol uh, and biologic injections, which is either corticosteroids, lubricants, uh, leukocyte poor PRP, HAPRP combos. And again, some of that's based on uh, just uh, your patient population, uh, insurance coverage, uh, price points, uh, and where they are in, in the whole um, spectrum. Uh, and so, uh, you know, but there's no substitute for good uh, rehabilitation uh, period. Uh, and while uh, weight criteria are way more important or as important when you're thinking about things like meniscus transplants and cartilage restoration, they're still important to think about, you know, uh, osteotomies are about load reduction or load shifting. So weight matters there too. Um, okay. And, and, and so, you know, you mentioned kind of leukocyte poor PRP injections, you know, the steroids, um, how often are, is that like, you know, you're, you're doing it once a year, or you're doing it once every, is it like yeah, in if, your experience do patients get yeah. like, you know, some relief from this or I guess. Yeah. So if someone, uh, if someone comes in uh, with an acute flare of symptoms without mechanical symptoms, they clear arthritis, um, you know, maybe they did a little too much. Uh, in those acute settings, I might aspirate their knee and do a short acting catalog uh, with saline. I don't put low in the joint anymore. Uh, and that can really shut down that acute flare. Uh, I'm not in the business of repeating corticosteroids with any regularity. So it's really done for me uh, for short acting. Um, for some patients where we've done a scope or osteotomy and we're, um, uh, you know, in the post-surgical rehab and their next and only surgery in the future is a full joint replacement and they're nowhere near there. Then I have more tolerance uh, uh, to use a long acting corticosteroid or, you know, I'll use the HAs in those scenarios. You can do them up to three times a year if they have four to six months of efficacy. Um, the Luco poor PRP, I would do more, but, you know, it's just too expensive uh, up to injections in three weeks, you know, seems to be where the, at least the best evidence is for early OA. None of this stuff works for severe OA. So you have to counsel patients that, and I don't typically pull the plug on uh, quote unquote stem cells. I mean, I think that's a terrible term. Uh, these are really uh, medicinal signaling cells. These MSCs coming from fat or from marrow um, and uh, they're paracrine in nature. They go to the site. They may help the local cells or the local environment to get joint homeostasis. You know, that's how they work. Uh, 
uh, they don't regrow anything. So again, these are all the things that I'm just repeating over and over again with my patients. Um, but you know, if patients do want to go down those pathways, um, I usually have my non-surgeons, um, you know, who will be doing those more invasive uh, non-surgical procedures like the uh, adipose uh, or the bone marrow aspirate. Mm, okay. Yeah, that makes that makes not sense. my first go-to. Yeah. So, so say for example, you know, you've, you've had this patient 35 years old, came into your office, you started them off with NSAIDs, therapy, brace, came back, didn't get much better, um, said you really wanted to avoid surgery, tried an injection, still didn't get any better, came back, now he's, you know, asking you for surgery. What are some of the treatment options for him, you know, when you kind of just looking at all the different options? I know we're going to talk about osteotomy. What are, yeah, no, I hear you. you know? um, yeah, I think it depends. I mean, if they have, uh, you know, if they're truly a young person with osteoarthritis, you know, joint space narrowing, that's, you know, moderate, uh, then, you know, scopes in and of themselves really are not going to be helpful. Um, maybe in rare times, if they uh, have a loose body, uh, something obvious uh, or a flipped fragment of meniscus, that's not not repairable. There might be a role for a limited debridement alone, and then you know unloader bracing and biologics. You know after that, but that's pretty much the exception, not the rule. A lot of these patients have had scopes even more recent than you described uh, that are working, and so um, you know uh, another scope after failed scopes is just not the option. Um, you know when you look towards the other end of the spectrum. Uh, these are not patients that your joint colleagues are going to say put a total into. Uh, and some of the tweeners in that 40 to 60 year old group might be HTO versus uni candidates, but not all of them. I think a lot of the um, HTOs that I do are still people with reasonable joint spaces and malalignment that I'm going to be doing cartilage restoration and or meniscus or revision ACLs in. So they're not really just the arthritics, right? You know, when you have those arthritics, you're doing uni versus HTO. And we can talk about the pros and cons of those for sure. Um, but a lot of the ones that uh, I'm treating are really uh, just outside of the mechanical axis. And we're trying to put them between the spines. You know, we're not trying to offload them all the way to the other compartment as you might do uh, with a clear arthritic that has no role for biologic cartilage or meniscus replacement. There's no room in that compartment for those things. That ship has sailed. And so they're osteotomy or arthroplasty. Um, and so kind of how I, I think about it. Um, you know, just for you guys, uh, as you keep an eye on this space, I mean, interestingly, you know, I, I'm so passionate about patellofemoral, but also the medial side of the knee. I mean, I, I feel like uh, with some of the new tools coming out uh, that are in the FDA pipeline, for example, the synthetic meniscus, or um, a uh, plate and uh, um, uh, plate system, essentially, that goes medial and offloads 30% of load. So like an internal uh, you know, spring-loaded play is kind of cool. So, uh, you know, there's other options that are not just uh, scope, osteotomy, uni, uh, <laughs> coming uh, soon. Uh, other scaffolds that are actually, um, you know, that have reasonable uh, and growing evidence uh, uh, that can actually treat the surfaces with up to, you know, mild to moderate, um, you know, joint space narrowing. So I think the space is, won't be the same in 10 years as it is today. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't um, know about some of those things we were talking mm -hmm. about, kind of the synthetic meniscus and these yeah. offloaders. That's pretty, be pretty cool to, to read up on and, you know, learn and learn some more about. Um, but so say for example, you know, we have this patient, you know, so, so, so we're looking at an osteotomy, uh, I guess. So what are your indications um, for an osteotomy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, first they have to fit the, uh, the clear prototypes they have to be um, kind of young and active. Uh, that's a moving target, uh, but not 
um, necessarily just lower demand or older where an orthoplasty is a better choice. Because if you think about it, you know, if you have a good, an orthoplasty candidate, they can vapor as tolerated, range is tolerated. Um, the implants are stable. They don't have to grow much. So yeah, it's a hard rehab too, but this is harder in that you need to keep your weight off it. There's a couple more pitfalls, a little more nerve risk. And so, you know, you have to fit that young active um, bill where our joint placement colleagues probably won't, won't bite and don't want to go there. Um, they have to have pain level high, percent normals that are low, failed most conservative treatments. Um, they obviously have to have malalignment. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, for me, uh, if they're more than three degrees of malalignment in the setting of kind of these uh, cartilage restoration algorithms, uh, I'll correct it. Um, in the arthritics, uh, I think, um, you know, probably uh, more in that uh, five degree uh, range um, are the ones that we're, we're treating um, uh, um, the most. Uh, and then, um, you know, the questions uh, come as far as uh, what are, you know, you have to make a problem list with all these patients. Uh, so I'm always thinking about uh, alignment. I'm thinking about the stability. I'm thinking about the meniscus status, I'm thinking about patient factors and putting it all together. Okay. Uh, you know, I think um, uh, the ones that really don't do well uh, early, like the valgus active female uh, that has a lateral meniscectomy uh, is going to go downhill in a hurry. And so I don't wait on that patient um, because they uh, are going to have joint space narrowing. They're going to destroy their cartilage. And so that's a hard conversation with a family after they've had a trimming with reasonable intentions and they're referred in you know, and they're relatively asymptomatic a month out, you know, I may watch them like a hawk if I treat them not up for even a minute, but uh, uh, those patients are often uh, getting offloaded because they're not going to do well. And you could turn what is a osteotomy alone um, into an osteotomy plus cartilage plus meniscus, you, you know, it can become really uh, big fast. Uh, I think we have more tolerance on the medial side. It's more conforming of a joint. Um, Menisectomy is well tolerated, at least in the short and medium term. So it doesn't decompensate as quickly. Um, that said, we've all seen some of these older patients who are pretty normal in a little bit of varus. They squat, they have a pop, they have a root tear that is not treated or, or missed, and they go into arthritis quickly, but that's not the typical gradual one. That's where there's acute change in joint forces, right? And so I'm very right. to those shift from, you know, from, uh, from relatively normal to point loading joint doesn't like that. The cartilage doesn't like that. The subchondral bone doesn't like that. So I think those are things that we really keep in our mind as far as thresholds of when and how to act. Mm, okay. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So say you're, you know, we're looking at a patient that has medial compartment osteoarthritis. In general terms, what are kind of our, our surgical options um, for them if we're thinking about an osteotomy? Yeah, so I think if you um, have the classic patient uh, who has um, asymmetric medial um, uh, malalignment uh, and or arthritis, um, then the typical workhorse uh, is going to be on the tibial side. It's going to be that high tibial osteotomy. Uh, it's an opening wedge osteotomy. You know, that will affect change in both 
flexion and extension. Um, the reasons that we like uh, the high tibial opening wedge there. When you start working on the other side of the joint, you have to deal with the fibula. Uh, you have to deal with the tib-fib joint, the perineal nerve. And so that uh, is a bit more trepidatious for, for docs. Um, the opening wedge is a bit more forgiving in that you can titrate your correction uh, better, whereas a closing wedge is definitely uh, an osteotomy that can be done. So you can do either a medial opening to jack it into neutral or valgus or lateral closing. Um, you might consider a closing wedge in larger patients where you want to weight bear sooner. Um, patients, uh, I don't do them typically in obese patients or smokers, but I know the Canadians talk about some of those patients and would do those. So maybe preferentially closing wedge. Um, but it's harder to really precisely dial in your correction. So while it's more stable and easier to heal, it's harder to make your correction. And so the vast majority of us are really doing that medial uh, opening wedge uh, HTO uh, for the correction of varus. Yeah. And, and so when you do these, you know, you, you make a cut in the bone, you lift it up and you, you know, you put your plate and screws to hold it in place. Do you use autograph to fill that defect from where you, where you raise the bone up? Do you use allograft something synthetic or do you just leave it or you know what do you what do you do with that space yeah so um you know i think it's uh controversial and i think americans probably over treat that space uh and europeans and people elsewhere in the world under treat or treat it appropriately uh, <laughs> you know i think you can put 10 degrees in your mind uh, if you don't want to argue on the podium uh you know say you bone graft above 10 degrees uh, i'd say for me i probably bone graft more and you know lesser corrections and uh fault me for that it's more costly potentially morbid but i, I feel more secure and so uh, i've moved now uh towards um, uh, for those larger corrections, uh, a um, femoral uh, head, basically um, a dowel that I fashion uh, and put right in the defect. Um, so that, uh, you know, really gives me comfort that I'm not going to lose my reduction. Uh, and I, I really uh, have liked that option for smaller corrections. Uh, if you don't want a bone graft, um, sometimes you can actually use a curette and try to bring some of the cancellous bone from the metaphysis from within your osteotomy. You can bring it down into the osteotomy site, or you can save some from your cuts and, and pack it in there. You can obviously use chips. You can use some other synthetics. Uh, there's quick setting type uh, materials you can put in the bone void as well. So a lot of options. Uh, I think for the big corrections where you're worried about it, uh, I think the, um, uh, the um, you know, the the cortical cancellus uh, femoral head's been been great for me. Yeah. Okay. And and so, what are some of our options for you know our patients that have you know kind of just like that lady you were talking about that has that um that valgus knee in that lateral compartment and you know you get your mm -hmm. mechanical axis off and it's all with valgus. What are your options yeah. for that? Yeah. So uh, in general, uh, for valgus, um, uh, and again, I think the key point um, that everyone should kind of go to, you know, one of these kind of osteotomy courses, if you're interested, uh, there's value in getting out the sketch pad, drawing out the angles, the lateral distal femoral angle, the medial proximal tibial angle, uh, planning out where the biggest deformity is, then planning out, you know, where 
where you want to go uh, with your you know, mechanical axis and go through the exercise of, of planning either the HTO or the DFO. Um, these days now, all that's done in the CT, so I get it from uh, the, the different companies I'm using. I know where the deformities are because they're highlighted in red. I pick my pony, and then I can see uh, how the angle corrections translate into measurements. So, you know, I think the key point there is have a system and uh, um, and just stick with it um, and try to plan the same way every time. Uh, what we find uh, is that most of the time in these valgus, that deformity is typically uh, for the smaller corrections in the joint, but for the larger corrections in the femur. And so most of the strategies are derived around the femur. Um, and so uh, the workhorse in America is typically that lateral opening distal femoral osteotomy. Um, for some of the same reasons uh, that we do the uh, medial opening on the tibia, uh, it's easier to titrate that correction. It's a fairly straightforward approach that a lot of us have learned for trauma, just splitting the IT band, elevating the vestus lateralis, getting to bone, protecting the back, and then doing our job. Um, and so uh, that's uh, you know basically been uh, the workhorse. Um, however, uh, the uh, medial distal femoral closing wedge is also quite a good option that's used by many. Um, again, it's a little bit harder to titrate your correction, um, but it can be weight-bearing on early. Uh, it can be useful in some of those at-risk populations where you're a bit more worried about it. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I think for me, uh, uh, I, I practice that subvastus approach uh, uh, in the lab and I do some of those closing wedges. And frankly, with the patient specific osteotomies, if I had a reason to do the closing wedge, I'd feel more comfortable uh, because it would pre-plan the exact size of the wedge I have to take out to, to close. Uh, but I haven't really done that as much as the, the lateral opening DFOs. Uh, one thing we're moving towards uh, on both the tibia and the femur as we plan, uh, and this is a good thing to pivot into uh, anyway because it's a cool concept, but um, uh, basically um, a biplanar cut for a single plane correction. So what I mean by that is um, for the tibial side, we not only do the osteotomy cut, but we also cut behind the tibial tubercle. That's a more stable osteotomy construct. And so that's important. Uh, similarly, on the femur, we do not only our standard osteotomy cut, but we can actually cut a, a biplanar flange anteriorly so that we have more opposition uh, and prevent flexion or extension of the osteotomy, mostly flexion, which can be a disaster on the femur. And so these single plane um, corrections, but biplane cuts can help with stability. Um, one, one more concept that's important um, and interesting is that with a lot of these newer patient-specific guides, we actually can do something a bit different uh, uh, by changing where the hinge point is on the lateral aspect of the tibia. We can actually, using a single cut, we can open up and we can change both the coronal alignment, so varus, and we can change the slope up or down. And so that's a very cool thing and powerful because you can do a biplane correction with a uniplane cut. And so you hear these things more than once. Now you'll kind of, you know, uh, Chit Ranawa used to say the eyes kind of see what the mind knows. And 
now that you've heard kind of this mumbo jumbo and these <laughs> a little bit, uh, you can go back and read a little bit more and then synthesize and look at pictures and, and try to start teasing through this like I did. But I'll tell you, uh, until I got the CTs and really started deep diving and then, you know, doing these myself, it's really hard to get all these concepts uh, down pat. Yeah. So, and so I'm just trying to understand what you just said. So you're, yeah. we're making, we're, so we're making a uniplanar cut. We're making one cut, but we're having a biplanar Correct. Yeah, so let me uh, give you an example. Yeah. Um, if the hinge point is straight lateral on the tibia and you open, you're going to correct uh, um, varus, right? And you're not going to change your slope. And the tibia is a triangle. So by nature of not changing the slope, uh, the back of your cut is going to be wider. You know, it's going to basically be double the front. That's how you check that you haven't switched or changed your slope. Um, okay. yes. However, if you decide with the PSI to move your hinge point, either more anterior or more posterior, then by the nature of the geometry of the tibia and things that I'm not sure I perfectly understand, uh, that um, you can essentially uh, choose your amount of varus different than your amount of slope correction. Uh, and with one cut, you can change them both. And so I think that becomes obviously more powerful because we really can't do that with our eyeballs. I mean, when we did this before, when, you know, when I tried to change in two planes, like if I tried to um, increase tibial slope for PCL or decrease tibial slope uh, in conjunction with varus for an ACL. Uh, it's a hard operation. I wind up trying to you know, move the plate either further forward or further back or putting a wedge a little bigger in the front or back. And I wind up sacrificing the precision of my other plane, my coronal plane, so that I can change the slope. And I just wasn't very happy with, with those corrections. Whereas these are more elegant ways to dial in two plane corrections, I guess is the, the short 10,000 foot view. Uh, but there's a, there's deep dives that, that go a lot more technical. <laughs> now, now do you, do you ever just do just like a sagittal plane deformity correction? I know we've been talking about varus and valgus, but do you ever do anything just in the sagittal plane if somebody has you know too much slope or not you know and then yeah I think um, uh, uh, tibial slope uh, is one of our uh, biggest uh, risk factors for ACL failure. Uh, I don't think uh, there's many or anyone that I know that addresses tibial slope at time zero in an ACL reconstruction. We recognize and measure it every time. It comes into play in revision or repeat revisions or when you've done really nice. Um, you know, surgeries with good graft choice previously and they failed, you know, then you might consider those things. Um, uh, but the short answer is yes, I've done isolated sagittal plane. Uh, basically, these are anterior closing wedge uh, to reduce slope in the setting of ACL. Um, and thresholds uh, for this, um, you know, really uh, could be as low as 12 degrees, um, but, uh, you know, usually they're higher slopes that I've done in the 16 or more. Uh, these patients um, typically have those explosive pivot shifts, right? So the grade three pivot shifts and they failed prior surgeries. And I think in that group, uh, it's a powerful operation. If you think about it, this is the operation that uh, they do in dogs. Uh, for ACL, they don't do the ACL. Uh, they oh, do. Really? That. I didn't know that. And so, um, you know, I think uh, uh, anytime you can elegantly correct something with an osteotomy, uh, if it's the right indication, it's not a bad thing to consider. Um, we can get people out of really challenging jams uh, when we uh, take power over um, bony malalignment. Okay. And so, one of the big things I wanted to cover is, you know, it always seemed like not voodoo, but like I was. 
you know, as a junior resident going in one of these cases, how do you figure out where to make the cut? Let's just, let's just go with kind of a, um, a yeah. valgus producing high tibial osteotomy since that's more common, I guess you'd say. Um, sure. Always try to figure out how to how to do the cut. So can you kind of just bring us through like what's the rationale between where we want the uh, mechanical axis to end up being and how we figure out how to how we're going to make that cut? Yeah, I mean, I think with PAC systems and with the pre-surgical planning software, this gets simplified. So, you know, uh, historically to go through some of these exercises is good, but it's also was confusing for me. And uh, <laughs> I've only gotten clarity more recently. Uh, I think probably the biggest things are um, that you want to um, uh, pick your target site, right? So again, for osteoarthritis, uh, we talked about that, you know, moving it uh, from all the way in the medial compartment, uh, all the way over to that food. Fujisawa point, which is 62% of the way across. Um, I tend to not move my arthritics that far. I tend to put them on the kind of downslope of the lateral spine. So that's kind of where I, you know, pick my correction uh, for arthritics. Uh, if I'm doing joint preservation, I'm going right to the middle of the knee, right between the medial and lateral uh, spine. That's usually where I put my valgus uh, knees right to the middle. All right. So um, I guess yeah. One is that you pick the spot that you want to go to. Um, and then some of the software, you really can draw uh, lines from the center of the femoral head and the center of the ankle to that new correction point. And that'll give you essentially your angle of correction. Uh, you do have to do a little bit of math um, uh, if you're doing it that way um, to really understand and transpose uh, angles into millimeters. So that's why some of that math exists. Um, and it can also help you know where your starting point is on, on the medial side uh, of the tibia. Um, but again, uh, you know, I, I think for me, um, uh, I've, I've moved somewhat away from uh, that uh, using the sketch pads and, and drawing it out um, uh, and more towards these pre-surgical planning. Like, for example, the guides that I get now, they, um, they hook under the patella tendon. They hook the back of the tibia. I measure how far I am from the joint line. I've already seen where my osteotomy is going to be on the pre-surgical template. So I'm really just checking that it's in the right spot. Uh, and then my guide pins go up towards the, the fibula. Um, the, the big key is to protect that lateral based hinge so we don't have a hinge fracture and there are different ways and different systems to do that um, and then kind of going forward from there so uh, hopefully for you guys as you get into your own practices you have all these you know proprietary tools available uh, and some of the confusions of the past uh, will be behind us uh, oh yeah yeah because I was um you know reading up on this you know a lot of these articles uh, they all source back to one of the main articles of, of preparing this um, by, by Dugdale. And I was reading reading that paper and I, I remember uh, I was texting one of our fellows and I was like, I'm thoroughly confused. You know, there's all these different equations and everything in the, in the uh, beginning part of the paper. But so just to, just to you know, take a step back for everybody that's listening. So if, if we're looking at the tibia plateau, when we're coming up with these percents, you, we're we're pretending that the medial side is 0% and then the lateral edges of the plateau is 100%. And then we're, we're putting that, you know, we're getting that axis right back to kind of 62% of the width of that, uh, of the tibia plateau. Um, why not like higher? Why not over the 75 or 80% or what is, what is the rationale behind choosing, you know, 62%? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you can read the rationale from, you know, the, the classic papers from Fujisawa, and I think that, um, you know, that uh, um, 
one of the biggest issues, I think in general with these types of surgeries is that these things don't last forever, right? And so uh, you always have to be mindful of joint replacement doctors and of the future. And if we overcorrect them too much into valgus, uh, then they may decompensate sooner, right? So we're trying to find a sweet spot where we're offloading their varus, um, but not uh, pushing them into too much valgus. That's particularly important with the uh, younger patients um, who are undergoing these osteotomies. And so, um, you know, I think uh, um, even for my thresholds, the, the 62% um, is, is a little too uh, much. Uh, but again, uh, in America, we're not really treating as many of the pure arthritics with osteotomy. Maybe we should be, you know, in those active 30 to 60 year olds, we're really treating some of the pre-arthritics. And so that's why we need to be undercorrecting a lot of those patients. Whereas in the Far East, where this came from, and also in Europe, they're doing this a lot more in older physiologic young patients. And so uh, they may be more apt to put it over, you know, to the 62%. But... Okay. All right. That makes sense. And so pretty much what you're saying is, you know, at least now we have a lot of the different technologies that um, can help out plan where osteotomy cuts is, but big picture, you kind of draw the mechanical axis and you draw where you want your correction um, to go through. So you draw, you know, a line from the femoral head to wherever you want. And then that angle that those intersect, that's the angle of correction um, that you want, that you're trying to achieve with your high tibia osteotomy. And then from there, you kind of just, you, you have a point or whichever system, there may be different systems um, mm -hmm. to where you have your starting point of where you'll do your osteotomy on the medial side of the plateau, distal, um, not on the plateau, a little bit distal to the plateau. Um, in that metadiaphyseal junction. Yep, the flare, yep. Mm -hmm. Right, yep, the flare. And you said as far as uh, technique-wise, you aim your pins towards the fibular head. Any, say we have, you know, because sometimes we have some fellows and um, we have some, um, you know, a lot of people that just graduated from fellowship that are going out that may be starting this on their own. Uh, very yeah. surely that's probably listening on listening to this. Any, you know, just, just uh, pearls um, or tips that you may have uh, for them that are that are listening. That yeah, I, um, I think a couple of things. I mean, if you look at my my initial learning curve, you know, first get into practice, do the bread and butter surgeries, establish your reputation, push these patients away non-operatively, and then dive into osteotomy in years. You know one to two, two to three and beyond, right? So it's not something you wanna just start, you know, doing uh, and doing right away. You definitely wanna, um, you know, prepare ample time. You wanna maybe do these in the lab, uh, have all your team members on the same page. Uh, make sure that you get perfect fluoro in the operating room. Um, I know there's no such thing as perfect fluoro, but fluoro can be your friend or your enemy. And so you wanna be able to see a good AP and a good lateral. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I think, uh, um, Going, uh, I, I found it very hard uh, trying to do some of these freehand osteotomies. Uh, so I was relatively dissatisfied and that's why I've kind of moved on at this point and I'm not going back. Uh, and so <laughs> using a guide, putting two parallel pins, checking them in the AP and lateral, making sure you're not changing the slope. I mean, you can see on that one, they jacked up the slope pretty bad, right? So yeah. we see this a lot uh, coming out of, you know, inexperienced places. And it's not because people are malintentioned, right? It's because it's hard. Uh, and so uh, I think that uh, hopefully some of these systems will help to reduce that um, uh, risk. Uh, but you could see it intraoperatively. I mean, even the tip looking and making sure that the back is uh, two times wider than the front will keep you out of trouble, uh, you know, for things like this. 
Um, always look for a hinge fracture. Um, uh, you know, if you have a good locking plate, you may not have to do much about it. Um, uh, the more important fracture that would split up into the plateau, you always want to have, you know, raft screws ready and be ready to do it, you know, cause you're only going to be as stable as time zero. So right. you know, think about your complications. Um, one key pearl for you guys uh, that I've done routinely now on my MRIs, whenever I'm uh, planning these, I'm looking for the aberrant tibial artery. Uh, that can hug the tibia posteriorly, so it won't be on the other side of the popliteus. And that can be a disaster because you'll cut it. Um, and that uh, I tend not to use tourniquets. I use TXA. Um, you can use a tourniquet. You don't have to use TXA, but I mean, those are just my preferences. Um, I like to know if it's bleeding or not. Um, there's some radiolucent retractors posteriorly that can be helpful. Some proprietary systems uh, like the uh, peak system uh, from, uh, from Arthrex uh, um, have a contained guide system where the front jig locks into the back. Uh, and so that can protect you posteriorly and lower your sphincter tone a little bit. Um, uh, <laughs> dissection is key. Um, basically, um, when you uh, are um, planning out your osteotomy, uh, you know, I usually do an inverted L uh, peel starting a centimeter below the joint. And I take up that whole soft tissue sleeve, leaving the MCL attached distally, but really Really peeling that back, including the pez, getting to the posterior border of the tibia. Then I flex the knee and I use my second finger and I'm feeling right along the back of the tibia and I shuck the fibular head. You guys should do this in the lab. Make sure you get that exposure. If you can feel across from medial to lateral shucking the fibular head and then you can feel proximal and just dissect some of those bands, you can really uh, reduce your uh, risk of neurovascular issues. Then you can put your retractor easily and then you can do your job because the last thing you want to be thinking thinking of is if you have enough exposure uh, in the back when you're worried about all these technical pearls about um, getting it right, you know, with the actual osteotomy. So just getting a routine of uh, getting it clear back there. Uh, and um, I think that'll help uh, a lot. Perfect. I think those are a bunch of great tips. And um, uh, those listening to this that are definitely, um, you know, going into practice or in practice, hopefully you rewind that and listen to that. I think those are all good um, tidbits. You now, can really also quickly. do these, uh, once I do, you can do these with your partners too. I think that's another pearl. Like, uh, if you have more senior experienced partners, it's okay. The first couple of years to do them together. Or if you have, you know, really hard cases, just, uh, pair up. And, uh, it's a lot of fun when I work with my partners. Yeah. I've, I've heard that, um, that advice too, especially starting off, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help sometimes, uh, if you need it. And, um, and really quickly, what is your uh, post-op protocol? Do you have them non-weight bearing for a short period of time? You put them in any type of a splint or a, uh, knee brace, do you want them to move their knees or, you know, what is, I think, uh, you know, we want stable fixation, early range of motion. Motion is lotion. Um, uh, I typically don't weight bear on these, uh, HTOs and DFOs. So I like to call it just foot flat weight bearing so they can put their foot flat, you know, usually 0%. Uh, so they don't have to lift their leg up non weight bearing. And I hate the word toe touch because it implies you got to touch your toes down. So I just say, at zero percent, um, I'm using a hinge brace locked in extension at night so that they get full extension early. Uh, that brace is on and locked when they're transferring or walking around. That brace is off for gravity assisted range of motion, which is passive, or for CPM, which I use you know liberally. And so that's kind of my early um, rehab, uh, aggressive, um, uh, getting back their extension, patella mobilization, isometric uh, quad. 
bad. Um, for HTOs and DFOs, I feel like if they can lock it, they can lift it. I'm not as uh, scared with straight leg raising as I might be if I'm doing a TTO where it's really you know relying on those screws. Um, and if they do it wrong, they can they can put big stresses through the tibial tubercle. So a little less of a concern with HTOs or DFOs. I use blood flow restriction therapy liberally in this group. Um, and uh, I think um, usually by uh, six weeks, I'll get a, another x-ray. We'll start weight bearing. We'll unlock the brace with quad control. We'll discontinue the brace between six and eight weeks uh, to usually a knee sleeve. Uh, usually tell patients uh, that they'll be done with all the stuff. Uh, by 12 weeks, you know, it might be sooner um, because when you go from a brace lock to unlocked or from an unlock to a sleeve, you know, I, I like to come back to crutches, right? So you use your crutches or two to one to none. So uh, I like to bring the crutches back several times in the rehab as you're going to smaller stuff. So that first three months is pretty involved. It's hard to write rehab protocols about it. Uh, um, we've finally gotten to one that I sort of like, uh, but it's imperfect. Um, but that's the gist of it for me at this point. And it evolves. Maybe I'm a wimp and I should start weight bearing <laughs> with these locking plates uh, with this femoral head allograft in there, you know, and, and maybe that'll uh, lead to better muscle co-activation and uh, earlier functional return. Some of these patients, especially the military or ex-military, they weight bear on it anyway, so they show you what it can do. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Sherman, I think I think that was a great um, overview. We, we talked a lot about, um, you know, deformities. We talked about a, a lot of different concepts that a lot of people here can definitely go and uh, read up on. Uh, we went through history, physical exams, went through things to look for on the x-rays, um, went through a good, a great um, treatment algorithm. Uh, I think it was a really good talk. Um, really enjoyed speaking with you. And we, for all of our uh, for all of our guests, we always say at the end if there's if you have any social media or anything that you want people to to follow you on or reach you at, you know, feel free to um, to to say it. If not, that's completely fine. Totally up to you. Yeah, for sure. I think um, you know my website, Seth L. Sherman, MD, has a lot of resources, uh, links to good videos, uh, talks that uh, myself and others have given on these complex knee joint preservation topics. So we're always adding to that. And you can see on the bottom of it all my social media handles. Um, you know, I. I um, uh, try to be as active as I can be on Instagram and Twitter with both uh, family and with work, but it, you know, most of the posts are just fun or informative or things that I find interesting. So um, please feel free to, to look at that. I think uh, also to you guys, I mean, I'm, I'm available. I'm here to teach and to learn, right? And I'm here to mentor, period. That's why I'm in academics. So uh, Sherman S at Stanford.edu as my email address. Uh, feel free to use it um, and uh, be in touch um, uh, because uh, that enriches uh, my career as much as it might uh, help or touch residents or fellows uh, as they go through their path. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please go ahead and hit that subscribe button and we will see you again next week.